Thank you, Brother Prater, Staff Evangelist, Bill Prater, ladies and gentlemen. All right, turn to your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. How's everyone doing tonight? Amen. Hope you're well and ready to listen. We're going to be in part two of our series on gospel clarity. Uh, gospel clarity. Pastor Tyler began this um, and uh, started kind of with an overview of what we're going to be talking about together the next several weeks. We, um, he took us to Romans chapters 1 through 4, where Paul introduces uh, one of the longer explanations of the gospel in the New Testament. And we saw, really, uh, this, this message answers four core or crucial questions about our lives. The good news answers these questions. Uh, number one, who made us? What is our problem? What is God's solution to the problem? And then how do I get included in God's solution? So uh, the way it answers these questions is, is this. We, we remember the four core truths, and if you don't remember them, they're in your pamphlet tonight. But number one, we answer to God. Number two, our problem is that we've rebelled against God. Number three, God's solution to our sin is the work of Jesus. And number four, we can be included in God's solution. I hope you uh, learned quite a bit during uh, that message, and I hope you see why we begin where we begin. Because, uh, you know, for, for a lot of us, when, when we do evangelism, when, when we want to tell other people about Jesus, we want to share the good news, we often start with response. We, we want them to believe. We want them to be included in God's, in God's solution. But really, to address that, there has to be some concept for what the solution is and for the problem that God is addressing by providing us a solution. And to understand that problem... We have to understand who it is that we've disobeyed, who it is that we've sinned against. The, um, in, in any way that we minimize or weaken these three truths that build up to this message of repent and believe, then uh, to, the, to the degree that we do that, our call for others to repent and believe becomes meaningless. Repent from what and believe in whom? So our, our four answers then are, are summarized in four words, as you see in your handout and on the screen. God, man, Christ, response. Now, um, uh, my intention and Pastor Tyler's intention for this series is not that you become a, a kind of evangelism legalist when it comes to these four truths, okay? If you want to share the gospel with someone, you don't always have to tick off these four boxes, but... It is good to remember that if you want to share the gospel well, and that's not usually going to be one meeting, it's going to be a series of conversations in which you're going to do that. It's good to ask the seeker questions to see where they're at when it comes to these four truths. And as we're going to talk about tonight when we get to our application, as we talk about truth number one, as a Christian, it's good for you to remember these things. As we're going to explain when we talk about the implications of this first core truth, the gospel is not just for lost people. The gospel is the biggest and most desperate need that lost people have. But friends, if you're saved, the gospel is the greatest need that you have. 
It, it reminds you of what your life is about, of what reality is, is all about, of what God has done and is doing in an ongoing way by your union with Jesus Christ. So it's good news for everyone, those that need to hear it and those that have already heard it. So I also hope you don't get the idea that this message would just be more appropriate for someone that doesn't know Jesus. This message is for someone who knows Jesus and someone who doesn't know Jesus, like this whole series, because our greatest need, whether we have come to faith or are thinking about faith or are repugnant to the whole idea of faith, our greatest need is to be clear on what the good news of Jesus Christ is. So tonight, as we look at this first core truth, we're going to be talking about God the righteous creator. God, the righteous creator. There is no good news without a biblical view of the God behind the good news. Uh, Walter Chantry wrote this in a, a really, big, really good book. Um, I think it was written about the ni- in the 1970s, critiquing a lot of um, modern evangelism. So that was about 50 years ago. But he wrote this, and I think it still applies today. Without a knowledge of God, a sinner does not know whom he has offended, who threatens him with destruction, or who is able to save him. Now, there's a lot of, tr- there's a lot of truth there. Now, if we, now we, we don't want to be too extreme with this, because it's possible that as you listen to that, you may start thinking um, that, that, that I'm teaching somebody has to be an expert in the Bible before they can be saved. That's obviously not what the Bible teaches. That's clearly not what Jesus taught as he invited children to come to him. But, But I will say this, I think the Bible is clear that when it comes to following Jesus, even though we don't have to know everything there is to know about God, if we're going to get the gospel right and understand what is going on when God offers salvation, we have to, our vision of God cannot be opposite of that that the Bible presents. In other words, if someone is going to respond to the Christian gospel, they have to at least know a little bit about the Christian God. Because without God, there is no gospel. And this is especially true, as Chantry points out in this quote, that this is especially true when it comes to our problem. The idea of sin, we're going to talk a lot about this um, in week number three, as we talk about uh, the, the core truth about man and what our problem really is. But whether or not someone understands sin in great measure will determine what they think about God. You ask people today, even very secular people often, uh, are you a sinner or do you agree that you have sinned? Most people will tell you yes. The problem is, as we're going to explore, especially with truth number two, what they mean by sinner is probably not at all what Jesus meant by sinner. If you remember Jesus' uh, conversation with, with the Pharisees, He talked about how all of these evil things don't come from the outside. They're not external temptations as much as they are internal. The greatest evils, murder, lust, all these things that Jesus mentions in his conversation with the Pharisees, Jesus said those all come out of the heart. And he was talking to people who were worried about being defiled by Gentiles. And he told them defilement doesn't come from hanging out with non-Jews or from going to lunch with them. Defilement comes from, you let, comes from this when you let what is already in your heart eventuate into actions because you are already defiled. Now that vision of what it means to be a sinner is very, very different, most likely, 
than the person who tells you in passing, yeah, I agree I'm a sinner. And what we need to be saved from is what the Bible pictures as sin, how the Bible describes how we've offended God, not just a series of mistakes made by otherwise good people. And most of our friends and neighbors do think of sin in that unbiblical way. So, the great message then that we call the gospel begins not with us and, and not our need or even the meeting of that need in Jesus, but the great, this good news begins with God himself. And that's what we're going to see tonight. So, so number one, here's the first important truth that we, we need to understand about God to get clear on the gospel. God is the creator. God is the creator. The beginning of the Christian message is really the same as the beginning of the Bible. That in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's the lens through which we see and understand this good news. That means that everything that we have around us, everything that we see, everything that we experience, all starts back with God and his creative plan. We can't create things. Now, we can create things to a degree because we take raw materials and we reorganize them and we make F-150s and iPhones and buildings, but we can't create out of nothing. Even the best paintings, the best electronic devices, the best human creations are caged in by our limitations because all we can do is take the natural resources that God in his goodness has given to us and move them around in very creative, energetic ways. But God, the Bible teaches, is the original creator. And this is really, really, really important. Genesis chapter 1, I want to look at verse 26. I want to look at verse, verse 26. Now, often when, when Christians talk about creation, uh, they're so focused on the timeline of creation, they never get to talking about the implications of creation. So most of the time, if on Facebook or Twitter and Christian conversations, you hear people talking about creation, they talk about rocks and fossils and dinosaurs and all kinds of things. But there's a huge implication. If God made us, if all of this world and we ourselves are made by somebody else, that means we do not belong to ourselves. That we were made for a purpose and he decides what that purpose is. Do you see the point? This is really big news. So Genesis 1 and beginning in verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So God creates the world, all things, he speaks it into existence. And then he makes man, the crown of his creation. Now what does this creation show us? What is this act of God speaking everything into existence? What does that mean for us? Well, go to Psalm uh, 19. If you uh, you can't get there in time, it's going to be on the screen. Psalm 19, notice the first three verses of this creation psalm. David writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. This is amazing, isn't it? And some of you know exactly what David is talking about. 
Now, yeah, he's, he's in the Middle East, and he sees a world that's a little bit different, but you've seen the sunsets and sunrises in liberal Kansas. You've seen the stars at night when you're camping. You've heard a brook or a river. You've seen fish in the lake. And this stuff is not random. It's not pointless. Uh, David said that there is speech going on. There's like a song being sung. And it doesn't matter, David says, what language, what native language is yours. You understand what's being said by creation. And what is being said. That God is glorious and he made this world. Everyone intuitively understands that. That we're not here on our own. We're not here uh, by ourselves. That God made this, and not just God, but a glorious God. Every time we look around us, every time we see creation, every time we look at the sky, we are reminded God is glorious and so much bigger than us, and we are not glorious. We are small. That's the language that creation has. And and so then this teaches us that we're not alone. Now, as poetic and beautiful as that sounds, this, this is actually not really a good thing for us as sinners. Go to Romans chapter 1. This language has sounded out through all the world. Everyone knows it. Everyone knows there's a creator. They know intuitively. They're not here by themselves. They're made for a purpose. People that you talk to every day, even if they've suppressed it, they realize when they die, they're going to have to answer to someone for how they've lived their lives. So because creation tells us all of this, that puts us in kind of a bad situation. Romans 1.18. Paul says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, stop here. God's wrath is against people. What people? Now he gives some specific examples of sin. But he makes it clear here that the kind of people that God's wrath is against, that God is going to judge, that God's going to punish, is all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. So we have everything here from sexual perversion. He'll even talk about disobedience to parents. So who is Roman 1's talking about? It's talking about you and it's talking about me. Everyone who's ever been born because we are all sinners. We are ungodly and unrighteous and we hold or suppress truth unrighteously. Now what does that mean that we take truth and and we hold it down? What, What truth do we suppress? What truth do we try to ignore as sinners? Well, he explains in verse 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Remember Psalm 19? Okay, the things that are made. What does it say about God? What are these invisible attributes that that creation uh, points to in God? Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. So the fact that we are created, the fact that we live in this created world and we intuitively know it is a creative world, this puts us in a terrible predicament because we have acted like, we have lived like, We have wanted and and craved and desired like we're not created. We live like as if we belong to ourselves, but Paul is saying we don't. And and this is what puts us in trouble with God. We get up in the morning, and uh, 
we think what we want to think. We desire what we want to desire. We do what we want to do. Even if God says it's wrong, this is what it means to be a sinful human living in a created world. And Paul says, because we have lived as if God did not create us, we're in terrible danger of his wrath, of his judgment. So, God's wrath is on us because we know we're not alone. We're created. The created world says we're not autonomous. This world is not ultimate. We have to answer to someone, the person we were designed by, the person that's going to judge us, and we are left without excuse. Okay, Paul, excuse for what? Verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. We're without an excuse for not honoring God. So creation tells us we're not alone. Creation says that God is there. We have no excuse for honoring God. Here's another thing that creation shows us. Number two, it shows us that he is in charge. It shows us that he is in charge. Deuteronomy 10.14 echoes this. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God. The earth also with all that therein is. Moses is reminding the people of God that because God made it, God owns it. Because God made it, God owns it. We understand this even with the stuff that we possess. We do what we want to with what we own. Well, here's the point, friend. God owns us. God owns us. Now, I know this doesn't all sound like good news, but it is good news. It's part of the good news. It's where we must begin. Everything, including us, falls under the authority of God. Because God created everything, he owns everything. Because he designed everything, he gets to decide what it's for. That means he gets to decide what our mind is for. He gets to decide what sexuality is for. He gets to decide what we do with our bodies. We don't get to decide that because we're created by somebody else. Does, it, does, all, does all this make sense? God created us, so God has the right to tell us how to live. We're not the result of random chance. We didn't create ourselves. God made us. We have a purpose. God decides what that purpose is. All right, so number two, here's another important truth about God. Not only is God the one who created us, but God is also holy and righteous. God is holy and righteous. In Exodus 34, when Moses asked God to show him his glory, to proclaim his name to him, this is what God says to Moses. Exodus 34, beginning in verse uh, 6, or verse uh, 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. So you're thinking, finally, something encouraging tonight. God is going to tell us what his name is. That means what he wants to be known by, how he wants to be thought of, how he wants Moses and his people to recognize him. Um, When they think about the Lord, God wants them to have certain associations, just like you want people to have associations about your name, right? When we think of God's name, what does he want his people to think about? Well, these things, that he's the Lord God. The only Lord God. That he's merciful, that he's gracious, that he's long-suffering. That means he, he literally suffers a long time. He's patient. He's abundant in goodness and truth. God is compassionate and loving. 
Now, this is good. Even though he's the creator, even though he owns us, even though he gets to tell us how to live, he's also good. And there's also this possibility of mercy and grace. But then there's something else, because he continues in verse 7. Right after God said he's compassionate and loving, he goes on to say this. Keeping mercy for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that will by no means clear the guilty. Now, did you just read that? We're in the same text. I didn't take you to another book of the Bible. God said, here's my name. I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm loving. I'm compassionate. Then he goes on to say in verse 7, I keep mercy. I forgive iniquity and sin and transgression. Three overlapping Hebrew words for sin. So in other words, every kind of evil I am interested in forgiving. Well, that's really good news. But it looks like if you're guilty, then you don't have a shot, right? By no means will I clear the guilty. This is a riddle. It's a riddle because God reveals himself as the God who will forgive any and all kinds of sin. But if you're guilty, your sin will not go unpunished. Complicated? <laughs> well, it's very, it was very complicated. And that's why rabbis spent a lot of spilled ink trying to figure out how this God could be both gracious and forgiving all kinds of sin, and yet every sin is going to be punished. Now, if you're a Christian, you know how the riddle is solved, don't you? See, on the cross, which we're going to talk about this more when we get to truth number three and talk about God's solution, the God who wants to be compassionate and forgive every sin imaginable did not clear the guilty. In other words, he didn't take sin and sweep it under the rug. No, no. Rather, God the Son took on human flesh in Jesus and took the punishment and guilt and wrath for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And again, we'll get to truth number three and talk about that there. But for now, what, what I want to focus on is this, that God is loving and compassionate, but he also will not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, if you've had conversations with people where you're sharing the gospel, sometimes they'll say something like this. If you ask them what they think will happen when they die, they'll say something like this. Well, I think I'll be okay because I just have this belief that God is good. And, and what they mean by that is, uh, I, I believe God is good, and because he's good, that means he's going to somehow just ignore all these bad things that I've done. But if God is the ultimate judge of the universe, then of course, and if he's good, then he's not going to do that. If he did those kinds of things, he wouldn't be God. But the God that reveals himself here, the God who wants us to know his name, the God who wants us to think about him in a certain way says, I forgive all kinds of sin, but not in any way will any sin go unpunished. This is a holy God of both love and justice. So God's not only 100% in charge, creator, he's also 100% righteous, holy. And because of this, he will punish sin. Now, why is our sin such a big deal to God? You may be thinking, well, I've had bad things done to me, and I just, sometimes I can just get over it. Why can't God just get over it? Well, there's something else we need to think about when it comes to God's nature and how it intersects with our problem. That's this. That God has one grand purpose for everything that he has made. And what we're going to discover is our sin runs contrary to that 
purpose. So number three in your outline, God made all things for his glory. For his glory. Now I know that word glory is a word that Christians use a lot and preachers use it a lot. Uh, and I'll be using it in, in one of two senses. Uh, there's two ways to talk about God's glory. One is his intrinsic glory. That's just uh, who he is, what he is. So when, when you say God is holy, uh, that's true whether or not any of us would know it or not, right? Even if, if God never revealed that he was holy, God has always been holy. It's just who he is. That's God's intrinsic glory. When you think about God as loving, God has been loving eternally. He just is loving. And God was always loving, even before there were angel, angels or humans, to know that God was loving. So God's intrinsic glory is just who he is. Then there's God's revealed glory or God's displayed glory. That's when God takes something that's true about himself and puts it on display for others to see it. God's revealed glory is when he gives up his own personal privacy to reveal to human beings something about him. So, what happened when Jesus died on the cross? Well, God commended his love. God put on display his love, that he was loving. God was already loving before the cross. But he glorified himself. He put his love on display when Jesus was executed on that Roman cross. So, God, what is God's purpose then that we see in Scripture? What is God's purpose for making all things? God's purpose in, all, in making all things was his revealed glory, was to put who he was on display. It's been said that the world, the, the creation, the universe, is a theater for God's glory. God's purpose is found throughout the entire framework of the Bible. And as we follow the story of Scripture, we see that all along the way, what God is doing as he intersects with these different people like Moses and Abraham and Jacob and David and Paul, what God is doing is putting who he is on display so his creatures can know about him. Now, now there are two ways you can approach the Bible. Okay, you can, you can approach the Bible like a magic eight ball and try to dig through it and find answers to your questions. Now, the Bible, of course, is a wealth of wisdom and practical information. Just think about Proverbs. Uh, but the problem with treating the Bible like a magic eight ball is the Bible will never answer all the questions that you bring to it, right? Should I sell my house or should I buy a new house? Should I get a car or should I sell my car? Who should I marry? Where do I go to college? All those kinds of questions people bring to their Bible, but the Bible isn't about any of those things. The Bible, of course, does provide us wisdom, but there, there's a misunderstanding, especially in the last hundred years or so, uh, of, of how Christians have approached the Bible. This misunderstanding sees the Bible as primarily about us. But as we actually engage Scripture and follow the storyline of the Bible, we realize that the Bible is not about us. Now, it's for us, but it's not primarily about us. It's for us, but it is primarily about God, which ends up being way better, right? So David, you've said that as we follow the Bible, that we see God putting his glory on display. What do you mean by that? Well, just follow along. These aren't on the screen. There were too many, but they're in your outline. We're not going to read all these passages, but you can later. Ezekiel 20 the prophet says that God did not destroy Israel in the desert for the sake of his name. 
2 Samuel 7, Israel became great and powerful among the nations for God's name. Isaiah 48, God did not destroy Israel even though they deserved it, so his name would not be blasphemed among the nations. By the way, there's another passage in Malachi 2 where God does curse Israel toward the end of the Old Testament because they did not take it to heart to care about his name. Jesus' life and ministry was about the glory of God, John 7 and John 17. Even John 12, and this is actually repeated again in John 17, Jesus' crucifixion was even about the glory of God. Ephesians 1 says that believers are saved to the praise of the glory of his grace. We're taking something true about God, in this case his grace, and we're putting it on display when we are forgiven of our sin. 2 Thessalonians 1, the second coming, is about God being glorified. And then, of course, Revelation 21, the New Jerusalem, will be there to display God's glory. And then I love Revelation 4.11. If those passages of Scripture don't make this clear enough, then we have Revelation 4.11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Now, again, God doesn't become glorious, right? Intrinsically, he already is glorious, but... What Revelation is talking about here is God being known for what he really is, putting himself on display. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. What's God's pleasure? To receive glory, to be known. God's purpose in the universe is his glory. Now, uh, you may be thinking, hold on, hold on just a minute, David. Um, This sounds a little bit self-absorbed and uncaring. You're you're telling me that God just made all this stuff, creation, the whole story of human history, my life, God just made it all that so he could be known? Doesn't that sound a little bit selfish? Well, it would if he was just another human being, right? Because when we hear that, we think, man, if... If, if God's purpose in all things, like the Bible clearly teaches, is his glory, then it sounds like God's primary motivation in the world is not meeting my needs. But hold on a second. Here's where something very true about God would not be true about you. If you made it your life purpose for other people to think you are great, you would end up destroying your life and destroying theirs. And we can know that because people do that all the time. If your life becomes centered around you being known, about you dominating everything, about you getting all the attention, you know probably, friend, from experience that that will hurt people and it'll make your life less meaningful in the long run. But hold on. Our greatest need as human beings created in God's image is to have the knowledge of God and to live in that knowledge. It's to know who God is. So when God creates everything so he can be known... He is actually meeting our greatest need. It's not selfish for God to create the world and even create our own lives so we could more, know more about him because know, knowing more about him is the greatest possible gift he could ever give you. The knowledge of God. Now, remember last time when we were in Romans 1? We looked at the essence of sin. And what was it? They did not Glorify him as God. You see why I say that sin runs contrary to the purpose of everything? The the biggest problem with sin is not just that it makes you feel shame in front of others. The biggest problem with sin is that it makes you have guilt before God. 
That's the kind of sin that the Bible is addressing. It is a failure to glorify God. Fallen humanity is sinful because fallen humanity refuses to honor God. As sinners, we've tried to dethrone him. We've tried to run our own lives, do our own thing, be our own person. And all sin comes back down to this this similar desire to fail to honor God. When we covet what other people have, we're failing to honor God. How so? Because we are saying, God, you've not organized the universe properly. In your providence, you've messed up. You should have given me this stuff, not them. And you're refusing to honor God and how he has essentially run your life. When we lust after someone that, that we're not married to, this is true whether you're married or you're single, we're failing to honor God because we're treating someone as an object of our desires rather than, than acknowledging God's purpose for that person and the way that they are sacred before him. Every sin, whether we lie or steal, no matter what we're doing, it all comes back down for, to this failure to give God the glory he deserves. It's saying no to God. This is why idolatry is at the heart of sin. We're all worshiping kinds of creatures. So we take things less than God, we take things less glorious than than God and less meaningful than God and things that'll make us satisfied less than God makes us satisfied and we elevate them to places they never should be. So who is God? God is the original creator. That means we're not alone. It means he has the right to tell us what to do. What is this God like? He is righteous and holy. That means he has told us what to do and he will punish us if we disobey. All right, so what has God told us to do? Honor him by obeying him. Now, you'll notice that there's a big problem. We don't do that. Well, we're going to talk more about that next time, but let's get into some implications, and then we'll be finished. Why does this core truth of the gospel matter so much? Let's think about how it affects knowing the gospel. Knowing the gospel. If you are not a Christian yet, it is really important that you look to Scripture to see who God is. Your biggest problem, your biggest problem in this life, friend, is that God is good and you are not. That's really the bad news. That leads to the good news. God is not a therapist who uh, is up in space and who exists to meet all your felt needs. In other words, God might not save you from what you, in your sin, think you may need saving from. God is not there to make you feel better. No, God uh, loves you and has a much, much greater purpose, which is to save you from your ultimate need. And what is that? Well, you have a need to be delivered from your sin. You have a need to know him. You have a need to experience life lived in relationship with him rather than cut off from him in your sin. You have a need to be freed and delivered from the punishment that your sin brings. God's not a therapist who will maybe meet every need that you think you need, but he will rather reveal to you what you need most and then he meets that with himself by sending Jesus to die in your place. Then when it comes to sharing the gospel, if you're a Christian and you want to articulate the gospel well, then knowing this is really, really uh, vital. Um, I, 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 when I was younger, I believe I was a teenager, I, took a, I, I went through this class that explained how to share the gospel. And this course 
on evangelism. I don't remember what it was, was called, but I remember the, um, one of the big emphases of it. Um, a lot of the program was focused on how to share your story. So it, it made you uh, write out your testimony of how you came to faith in Christ and then think about how to communicate that to other people and how to make connections with other people. Now, uh, there's a problem. With, there's not a problem with sharing your testimony, of course, but there's a problem with thinking that evangelism and telling people your testimony of conversion are synonymous because they're not synonymous. The good news is not about you. It's about God. Now, there's something really encouraging here because um, when evangelism is just looked at sharing your story, there are people with better testimonies than you, right? I mean, you've all, uh, there's always like some evangelist out there who is, you know, in six or seven different gangs and then he robbed a casino and then he, he assassinated a president, but then he walked into a, a Billy Graham crusade and got saved or something. Now, I have to tell you, your testimony is never going to be as good as that guy's. But that has no bearing at all on whether or not you share the gospel. Because the gospel is not about you and how God has changed you. Now, as you share the gospel with people, it's okay to tell them about how God has changed you. as a way to encourage them to listen to the gospel. But friend, you're not the center of the gospel. God is. And the story of the cross is amazing. Whether you robbed a casino or whether you were saved when you were five, it's the same good news. Uh, parents, part of evangelizing your children means teaching them the truth about God. Now, I, I know uh, I'm a parent who wants to see my kids come to faith. My two children are not Christians. Someday I want them to be. I desperately want them to be. One of them's two years old, one of them's, one of them's five. You probably know them because they're the two cutest kids in this church. I have to be honest, I'm up here. I desperately want to evangelize my kids, but Here's, I, I have to restrain myself from, from getting to truth number four and just trying to get my kids to repent and believe. Why? Because uh, un, until, um, and again, I'm not saying they have to be experts, they don't have to ace some sort of theological quiz, but until uh, my daughter and my son realize that they're sinners and what it means to be a sinner, they won't understand why they need to trust in Jesus' death in their place. And until they have at least some idea of the greatness of God and the holiness of God, they won't understand why Jesus needed to come and die. Now, when it comes to our children, we have to understand that if you're a parent, you have a lot of influence over what your kids say and do. That is a huge blessing from God. Someday I'm going to have a teenager, and that will not exist anymore, and I'm trying not to think about that. But right now, I mean, you know, our our kids are very obedient. Again, they're five and two. We were, um, we were at Jonathan and Anna's house with uh, Thad and Leah, and uh, Owen had this little toy hammer, and I said, hey, Owen, go hit Benny in the head with that hammer. And then he did. I was just kidding, but he just obeyed. They're, they're good friends now, I think. But, you know, that, it's kind of a blessing when your kids just obey you. Not in that case, but in most cases. Um, but parents, we don't want to exploit that in the name of evangelizing them. Fear of hell is not the same thing as understanding that I'm sinful before God. And it's not the same thing as seeing the beauty of Jesus' death in my place. I think one of the ways that we we can work on this is in our family devotions or family worship. Um, uh, 
Now, again, this is coming from someone, my kids have not become Christians yet. I can't say I have this success story, but I am in the trenches trying to do my best to teach them what they need to know so they can one day receive the gospel. In our devotions, we do two things. We have uh, scripture or some kind of Bible story, and then we have prayer. Uh, and now prayer is good. One of the good things about having prayer with your kids, even if they say silly stuff, is that you're teaching them that everything they have comes from God and that they need to live in dependence on God, right? Now that's ultimately true someday when it comes to their salvation. So, so why not go ahead and start teaching them, if you have young kids like I do, that they depend on God for everything, not just their salvation. Pray with them. And then, of course, prayer's not enough. Having prayer alone is not family worship. Because God is not some identityless, personless thing in the sky that we just vent to. We hear from him. He reveals things about himself that we need to know. And there, there are lots of great kids' devotionals out there. If you're not familiar with them, I can, I can definitely recommend some. But we, one of um, Evangeline's favorite was this little devotional on the names of God. And um, uh, each night, we, we went through this actually, I think, a couple times. But each night, we'd read a, a short story from the Bible. And then it would explain one of God's names that was revealed there. Um, now, why am I telling you all this? Well... What I was, I, when I'm doing that, I'm evangelizing my children just by teaching them about the bigness of God, by, by teaching them that God is omnipresent, by teaching them that God is just and, and loving and merciful. That is evangelism. Don't be so in a rush to get your kids to repent and believe that you don't teach them about God in the process. Number three, when it comes to living out the gospel, if you want to live the gospel and grow as a Christian, you, you understand that you never graduate from the knowledge of God. You never graduate from the knowledge of God and move on to something else. No, to preach the gospel to yourself is to first and foremost remind yourself of who God really is. We never get past that. Our, as we gaze at the holiness of God, our sin becomes abhorrent. I've said this before, but when you read the Bible, read this with this question at the forefront of your mind. What is this passage today? What is this chapter? What is this story? What is this teaching me about God that I need to remember today? It's also good to ask when we're reading scripture, is there something here God wants me to do? A certain way he wants me to live. But foremost, we ask, what is this teaching me about God? As we gaze at the holiness of God, we see our sin differently. When we remember God's justice, the cross becomes beautiful. And of course, we also need to remember God's love. We're going to talk about this more in truth number three. We have to remember God loves us. God, uh, the idea that Jesus loves you is not just for kids at vacation Bible school, though it is. It's for adults in their 30s and 40s. A a lot of Christians will experience uh, guilt and shame, and then they'll ask, how do I deal with this guilt and shame? And it doesn't even occur in their minds to have a life of confession. Why? Because they don't think God really wants to talk to them and hear from them. Their view of God's love is so small that when they think about dealing with guilt and shame, they use all of these secular strategies and totally leave out their loving God that they can take their sin to and ask forgiveness for, forgetting that he wants to give them forgiveness. Think about God. Thinking about God is the most practical thing that you as a Christian can engage in. If you live with a small God, you will have a small gospel. But to the degree that you remember how big God is, your gospel will be big as well. So live in and then pursue the knowledge of God. 
Well, David, what you've realized, what you've taught us then is that God created us and that he's going to judge us, that we're not alone, and that he's holy and righteous. How is this good news? Well, as we're going to find out even next time when we talk about sin, it's only going to get worse. Um, good news invades bad spaces. If you run into a building and scream that the firemen have arrived, people are going to look at you funny. But if you run into a building that's on fire, and everyone knows it's on fire, and then you say the firemen have arrived, what does it become? Good news. You just had to have a bad space. You see the stars most clearly when there is less light to block them out. And if you've ever been out in a really, really remote area where uh, uh, last fall I was in uh, Southern California, not in L.A., but east of there where I was in this mountain, and there was just absolutely nothing to compete with the brightness of the stars. The sky was so black, you could see the stars for what they really were, at least from an earth perspective. And as we realize that God is our judge and we've sinned against him, once we grasp the grace of God, it becomes so much more amazing. Because it comes from this God who owes us nothing. This God that we've sinned against who loves us, it comes from him. Let's all stand uh, tonight and...